Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Industry Focus. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is February 7th, and we're talking cryptocurrency. I'm your host, Nick Seipel. Cryptocurrency and blockchain experienced a huge surge in interest throughout 2017 as prices skyrocketed, with Bitcoin reaching nearly $20,000 in value in December. However, in 2018, prices declined precipitously, and Bitcoin now sits more than 80% below its highs. While price movements received most of the attention in 2018, the business environment for crypto assets has continued to evolve, particularly with regard to regulation. Two weeks ago, I spoke with Courtney Rogers Perrin and Joshua Lewis, two attorneys practicing in the area of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and financial technology, to better understand the state of crypto regulation today and how it might evolve in the future. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. All right, today I'm joined by Courtney Rogers Perrin and Joshua Lewis via Skype. Uh, Courtney and Joshua are attorneys from the firm of Frost Brown Todd in Nashville, Tennessee. And they practice in the areas of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and financial technology. And they're joining us here today to talk a little bit about what's going on with cryptocurrency regulation. Courtney and Joshua, thanks for coming on uh, Industry Focus. Nick, thanks for having us. It's good to catch up with you again. Yeah, yeah. For our listeners, Josh and I went to went to law school together, and uh, Josh and Courtney both just uh, published uh, an article back in December in Bitcoin Magazine talking about what's been going on with crypto regulation. And you know, when I found out that, that, that Josh was doing stuff related to crypto and that that stuff, uh, you know, a lot a lot of our listeners I think are interested in. Uh, you know, I thought I had to have y'all on. Uh, to talk about it. And uh, the first thing I want to ask you guys before we get too deep into what's going on from a regulatory perspective is just how did y'all get involved in this space in the first place? So, what's kind of led y'all to kind of uh, this crypto practice and what kind of services are you offering to your clients in this uh, this space? Well, I'm a little bit of a legal nomad. I started out working for the court system and then I moved up to New York City where I worked in corporate restructuring and also worked on a trading desk. So, that was a lot of fun and got to see lots of cold winters up there. And um, then I moved back to Nashville, where I became more of a finance attorney, and then switched over to payments. And all of that has converged into now I'm a blockchain attorney as well. And it's been great to have this myriad background to draw on when advising clients. And it's really just the perfect place for me to work, because I get to learn every day, because it's such a nascent industry that's developing. And you get to think outside the box and also evaluate what's in the box already and see how it fits in. Um, and I, of course, graduated law school last fall, but I started working with Frost Brown Todd on blockchain matters uh, in the summer of 2017. Uh, when I first got familiar with the technology, I was absolutely floored. I knew it's what I wanted to do. I knew th- that it was going to, if not be world changing, at least industry changing. And I think that it's on the path to being that so far. Um, and I'm looking forward to being a part of that movement over the next, you know, couple of decades of practice. Yeah, it's definitely been an interesting and evolving space. You know, we saw cryptocurrencies really have a run up in price back in 2017, and this year. They've kind of had, a, you know, a little bit come down to earth. What's kind of been the reaction, you know, from your clients to the volatility in the market, and then how has the business flow been impacted by that, if at all? The, the business flow has definitely been impacted by crypto winter. We have a lot of clients who have substantial holdings and assets in cryptocurrency, and so they end up needing to find investors or to put projects on hold while the valuation is low. We're an innovative firm in the the sense that our law firm will allow clients to pay in Bitcoin. We do convert it immediately, but still that that makes it challenging for clients who have um, Bitcoin that has suffered rough valuation in the past year. 
also you've just seen a lot more development in the space, which has changed how things are moving forward. About a year ago, everybody wanted initial, and it, well, actually it was more like two years ago, everybody wanted to do an initial coin offering. You saw kind of the peak of it in November, December of last year, of 2017 rather. And then throughout 2018, you saw the regulators come in and start wanting to make sure everything was subject to existing law and figure out how things fit in to the existing framework. And that had a chilling effect as well. Yeah. And let, let's talk a little bit about what about what the law is saying about cryptocurrency. I think one of the biggest questions that folks have had is just what even is a cryptocurrency? It kind of straddles several different asset classes. You have the SEC coming out saying that most of these are securities. You have some folks saying, hey, at the end of the day, these are this is code, and code is a form of speech, and therefore it should fall into that category. How have we seen things develop in the past year? And do we have any clearer picture in, you know, in 2019 about what a cryptocurrency really is, at least under the law? I think we have a lot clearer picture of what the regulators think it is that the various individuals at the SEC have come out and said almost every initial coin offering they've seen is a security with the exception of Bitcoin and Ethereum, which weren't launched really as ICOs. So um, you have that. And then you have the CFTC taking a position that Bitcoin options are governed by them and that they can evaluate that. You have the IRS treating it more as a capital asset. And so you just see different regulation across the board. And of course, you have FinCEN that treats it as currency. So you have a different regulatory application from each different organization, and then you have certain individuals like Congressman DeSoto, who is looking at trying to create a clearer framework where you don't have myriad organizations regulating it in different ways. Yeah, there has been some litigation lately in the First Amendment free speech space regarding crypto, but that's mostly involving um, the SEC strategy of imposing blanket gag orders on sort of entrepreneurial crypto startups um, as part of their settlements with them. So the SEC will come in after um, these startups do uh, an ICO to try and raise money. They'll say your ICO wasn't in compliance with securities regulations, and, and if you want us to basically leave you alone, then we're going to force you to not speak about your business, not speak about you know the offering that you did, and things like that. So that's been sort of the extent of the First Amendment movement so far. I think that ultimately, cryptocurrency and the code underlying it is a product. You know, it's it's a it's a set of, of words and numbers, yeah. But you know, in the same way that a drug is a set of chemicals, and if the government can re- can regulate products, I think they're going to have a strong argument that they can regulate cryptocurrency and the blockchain and the apps that run on them. I haven't sure. really seen much the government doesn't think it can regulate in some way, <laughs> form or fashion. Uh, yeah, I mean, when you talk about regulators, they exist to regulate. So I, you know, I think you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna see that. I think one of the phrases that I've seen, you know, a little bit around this area is the substance over form argument. Is that you can say this is code, but really at the end of the day, we're trying to use it for for security transactions. That that's kind of how things have shaken out. Um, when you're advising your clients, you know, we've talked about we've got several different regulatory agencies uh, kind of kind of asserting their their little uh, territory when it comes to crypto. What has been the challenge when it comes to advising your clients on how to really navigate? Uh, the regulatory framework as it's kind of evolved. It's murky. So that's that's the challenge is that a client would love to come to you and say, hey, I have this question and, and then get a response back of here's your answer. And if you do this, you're, you're totally fine. You're in compliance with the law and that's all you have to do. But that's not really something that we can say right now. 
we can say here is the guidance that's been issued thus far based on this guidance we can advise you that we think the regulators would look at it this way if you'd like we can do an we can send an informal request or a more formal request for guidance from the regulatory agencies some clients want you to do that others don't and you can get a little bit more information but ultimately it's developing and you see recently the CFTC put out a request for information on what Ethereum is and how it and how it should be treated. You see the regulators grappling with this too of how they're going to how they're going to regulate the industry and what exactly are the rules going to be and what buckets do they fit in? Are there existing buckets? Like FinCEN has said virtual currencies have been regulated since 2011. Well, that's pretty early. Um, that guidance came out that virtual currencies and ICOs have been regulated by FinCEN since 2011. That guidance came out in 2018. So it's, um, it's a hard area to give advice in. The best thing you can do is just tell your clients what the existing lay of the land is and then provide kind of an educated assessment of what, what the regulators might do going forward. A lot of it is best practices. So you look at the product and the, the, the offering that you're trying to do and what you're trying to sell and say, look, there may not be an official you know, statute or regulatory opinion saying that this constitutes a security, but based off of what we know of securities, you know, based off the factors that make a thing a security, we think it's probably going to be a security eventually. So the best practice for you now, today, before the regulation comes down, is to conduct your sale or your transaction in such a way that you comply with the regulations in advance so that when the SEC comes down later and is enforcing these, it won't have any, you know, no bone to pick with you. Right. It's a kind of the, the ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure type of type of mentality when it comes to to, to thinking about how to comply with these regulations. Um, let's talk about you mentioned FinCEN and what they've been starting to do. You know, your article that y'all wrote back in December, you talked about additional FinCEN guidance coming down uh, to really clarify that cryptocurrencies are subject to the Bank Secrecy Act and all the know your customer and anti-money laundering rules that come along with that. Uh, so, when you're advising your clients about how to comply uh, with these sorts of regulations, what is entailed in complying with that, with these anti-money laundering rules, and what extra burdens is this placing on folks trying to do an ICO or just, you know, do business in the crypto space. So, so FinCEN has come out and said that all ICOs are money services businesses, and if they accept currency in exchange for their token or their coin, then they're money transmitters. Well, that creates an enormous compliance burden for, for most clients, because to be registered as a money services business, while that part's not particularly expensive, you then have to be registered as a money transmitter throughout each state in the United States. And that comes at a pretty enormous cost. A conservative estimate between all the fees, in addition to the legal cost, is something around a million dollars for compliance. So that is a pretty steep task for uh, an ICO that's just launching, which I think has had a real chilling effect on ICOs being launched this year. That letter came out in February 2018, and you haven't really seen that many ICOs throughout the United States since then. But um, for plain vanilla KYC AML, if you make the assumption that anybody dealing with a token has to have a KYC AML program, then you go forward and just do a normal BSA plan and a normal Bank Secrecy Act plan regards looking at everything and assessing your risk. You do what's called a risk assessment, and in that risk assessment, you try to assess what level of, of threat is presented by your enterprise. Like, can you move buckets of money 
over to Syria and buy weapons with your program. If you can, then you're going to need a much stricter program to evaluate who's buying things and who's doing things on your platform. If your platform is such that the only people that can access it are people sitting at home knitting, and it's for knitting programs of some sort, then you probably don't need a very robust KYC AML program because the risk is really low. So with each of those, you have to really look at the individual company and create a bespoke plan based on the risk inherent in the program. Following up on that, uh, when you talk about the risk that you know we can't track these transactions, um, uh, one of the big, I guess, uh, factors behind crypto and this this whole industry is the, the ability to be anonymous and the ability to, you know, it, it's difficult to track the transactions that users of of these coins. Um, are, are are taking are engaging in, um, and what so what kind of challenge does the anonymity that you know crypto is designed to provide uh, place for someone that's really trying to comply with the regulation and do what they need to do to know who their customer is and, and prevent money laundering? Yeah, that's a great question, um, and that's another emerging area of law too. I can think of one really good example that kind of. Um, shows how the scene has changed even since I got involved just a year and a half ago. Um, in you know June of 2017, when I first started to play around in the crypto space, I could log into Coinbase.com with a username and password and gamble as much of my you know law student salary as I could afford on you know uh, Ripple or Ethereum or at that time I guess just Bitcoin. Now, if you want to log into that same website. Um, and, and spend any money at all on crypto, you're going to have to go through AML KYC procedures that Coinbase is now subject to because of the BSA. So you're going to have to scan a copy of your ID, you're going to have to verify your identity, you're going to have to provide two-factor authentication. You know, these are all things that um, we all have to do now as investors, or as investors have to do, as a result of these regulations coming down. So on a peer-to-peer -peer basis, the AML KYC regulations don't have much effect. You know, if you you and I, Nick, want to enter into a transaction for a ticket or something like that, AML KYC is not going to impact us. I can still buy an Alabama football ticket from you for you know ten Bitcoin, or I guess it'd be like 0.001 Bitcoin. But if you in turn wanted to start a business uh, that involved crypto, so if you wanted to start a StubHub style business where you exchange tickets for cryptocurrency, all of a sudden you're going to be subject to these AML KYC restrictions. And if I want to buy that ticket from you, I'm going to be forced to submit my ID, you know, make sure that uh, my identity is verified. So it places an enormous burden on the user end of things to verify their own identity, which in turn decreases customer flow to places like Coinbase or your hypothetical StubHub style business. And I can attest that Coinbase really does do verification checks because I failed their KYC AML process. <laughs> oh, wow, I need to watch um, out. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I, I I was setting up an account and I got the account set up, got, got funds in it, and then I failed it because I rel relatively recently got married. And so for a short period of time, there was a disconnect between my social security number and my driver's license and uh, Coinbase didn't find that acceptable. So. so, so it sounds like what you're saying is that you know on, on that exchange level, you know the Coinbase or the other operator, where I'm going in, I'm taking my U.S. dollars and I'm buying, uh, you know, a crypto asset. Uh, that's that's the position where where you, the regulators can really do some work when it comes to to regulating the exchanges. But once you get down to that crypto exchange level, peer to peer, uh, it's where you kind of run into some issues. It, would, would that be a correct characterization? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's kind of like Venmo. So if I want to send you money by Venmo or Zelle or any of those other um, entities out there that allow peer-to-peer -peer payments, 
I don't need to be a money services business or money transmitter regulated by FinCEN in order to send you, Nick, some money on Venmo. But Venmo has to be registered. Before we continue with the rest of the interview, here's a brief message from our sponsor. Making that perfect hire can help set your team up for success in the new year. But where do you find that person? That's why, when it comes to posting your job, go where you have access to an engaged community that people visit every day, LinkedIn. Most LinkedIn members aren't checking job boards regularly, but 9 out of 10 LinkedIn members are open to and interested in new opportunities like yours. With most of the U.S. workforce on LinkedIn, posting on LinkedIn is the best way to get your job opportunity in front of more of the right people. It's no wonder a new hire is made every eight seconds using LinkedIn. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com fool. Terms and conditions apply. So, we spent some time talking about what's going on in the U.S. when it comes to regulation. But let's talk a little bit about you know, these crypto assets. You, know, you can exchange them over the internet, so borders really aren't as significant as they might be for more traditional banking operations. So, when you talk about exchanges that might be based overseas, you know, Binance is an example of one of those. Are there limits to what you know, U.S. regulators can do to enforce their rules on these exchanges, or how how are we navigating the issue, you know, cross border issues when it comes to crypto? I think where there's a will, there's a way. So when you have some, there have been a few cases of particularly egregious dark web behavior where people have moved mountains of money through uh, kind of shadowy cryptocurrency markets, and I'm, I'm forgetting the guy's name right now, but he is presently sitting in a Greek jail awaiting extradition to either France, Russia, or the United States for violations of KYC, BSA-type rules throughout the United States and Europe. And that's what's something to keep in mind, is the United States isn't the only nation that has KYC, AML, BSA rules. Other nations have their own rules, but similar in content in the sense that they require information on the transactions and on the individuals behind the transactions, with all of them being united in the goal of trying to thwart criminal enterprise. Also, and this was something that I hadn't really realized until I got more into the space, but because you have certain nations like China who have pretty strong regulations um, against cryptocurrency, you can geofence off certain areas. And so even though it is a, a decentralized worldwide system, it's sometimes it's possible from the very beginning to fence off different things. So when you think about what you need to do uh, you know, from a compliance perspective on, on the US side, um, how much cooperation do you need from abroad or with, with that, the ability to kind of wall off different parts of the internet uh, can you just you know do everything you need to do from a compliance perspective here in the USA, or do you need to uh, kind of engage you know local counsel or or representatives in you know the countries that you're trying to do business in, in addition to what y'all are doing in Nashville or, or elsewhere? It, it really depends on the individual business and who they're targeting. Um, if we have a client that comes to us and says, "Hey, we're planning on doing substantial movement of funds in the UK," one of the first things we're going to say to them is, "You need to get UK counsel." or someone well-versed in UK law to help you with that, to make sure that you're in compliance. If it's somebody who, who's really gearing everything to the United States, then if you have a few moments of, um, if you have a few interactions with other nations, yes, they're subject to those rules there, but you have to always kind of balance this from a risk-reward standpoint of, do they really want to do a fulsome 
uh, compliance program with a company with say Spain, I'll just grab a random country, with Spain based on one transaction that happened there? No. But should they have a system where they can't do that transaction with Spain so they don't have to worry about that? Absolutely. So it's really up to the, the client to figure out where they need to focus their efforts and their energies, um, even though, of course, our official advice is to be in compliance in all jurisdictions in which you do business. But one of the things that we have encountered consistently are clients saying, hey, I'm, I'm a little concerned about the United States regulations. Can I just domicile my business in the EU or Singapore or Philippines or wherever? and not worry about the United States rules. Well, it doesn't really work like that. If you want to stay away from the United States regulations, then you need to not take money from United States citizens and you need to not do transactions with US citizens or in, within the United States. So FinCEN has taken a very, very broad view, and so has the SEC on some level. And um, if, you're, if, you're, if your counterparty is a US citizen, they're going to say that you're subject to their rules. But you're you're right to a degree that that works in I think situations where it's like the EU or China or one of FinCEN's you know 37 member countries. But I was at a, a meetup for blockchain um, businesses in Nashville a few months ago, and we heard a pitch from a developer who was working on a lot of business in sub-Saharan Africa, where there really is no institutional financial regulation you know scheme like we have in you know the more developed world or you know in, in you know Europe or the United States, and a lot of their business. You know, development involved actually flying over to these countries and meeting individually with, you know, um, government members to try and convince them on a one-on-one -on -one basis. You know, because there is no regulatory scheme like, hey, you know, this is what the rule should be. This is what it shouldn't be. This is why our business should be allowed to operate. This is why this other business shouldn't be allowed to operate. Um, the wild, wild west has fled, I think, from places like the EU and the US, but there is still a lot of gray area out there in places where more established financial schemes, you know, aren't in place. Sure. Uh, let's talk about, you know, when we talk about what's going on internationally, you mentioned the Financial Action Tax Force. It's 37 member countries around the world expected to bring out uh, some additional guidance in June about, you know, how all those member countries are going to work together to enforce Know Your Customer and anti-money laundering rules. What are we seeing, you know, from that body, and is that promising, you know, from a compliance perspective, uh, in, in making things a little bit easier to navigate uh, for for business owners and folks trying to just practice and uh, do business in, in the crypto space? I think it'd be really helpful to to get guidance from them on how all the member states will work together, and that guidance is just that guidance. It's not binding to the to the nations that are a party to it. But so it'll be interesting to see what level of adoption it gets. It's also one of the things that um, I was chatting with some people about recently is we're all looking forward to getting some guidance on accounting standards from an international level as well, because that varies tremendously throughout the world, too. So it'll be interesting to see what those different bodies come up with for guidance. Yeah. And when you mention accounting standards, are you talking about taxation or what? what, what what's kind of the, the thread to pull there? Yeah. It's um, it's how they're taxed from a from an income level, but also like how they're booked and, and how those assets are treated in different jurisdictions. And so for, for obvious reasons, it would be good if they're treated similarly across. Well, I shouldn't say it would be good because there's lots of, of there's um, move. There's there's a chance to uh, to make profit when they're not treated the same. But from a from an efficiency standard, it would be nice if they're all treated the same throughout the world. And right now, that's that's not the case, that you have different nations coming to different decisions about whether, whether a cryptocurrency is a currency or whether it's an asset. 
that you hold or, or if it's stock, what, what is it exactly? So that guidance would be helpful. Yeah, we should note that it, it's good for us as attorneys when the rules are clear because it allows us to do what Courtney described earlier and come back and say, here's rule A, B, and C, and you should take steps you know, X, Y, and Z to comply. But there is a broad, you know, I'd, I'd say probably most of the actual participants in the industry would prefer less regulation, certainly at least at the user level, um, and who believe that things like the FATF's move you know, are overreaches or you know constitute too much regulation they believe that you know as you talked about earlier nick the sort of decentralization and lack of regulation inherent in the cryptocurrency space is what makes the cryptocurrency you know what gives it its potential and so they're the crypto space itself is sort of bemoaning these fatf fincen and sec actions pretty much across the board but on the, but on the same sense as as the industry becomes more mature it allows for more investors to get involved because right now you see Certain industries, like say traditional banks, they don't necessarily want to have bank accounts that are associated with cryptocurrency because they're waiting to get better guidance on it. And once you have better guidance on it, then suddenly your more traditional banks can can go ahead and do bank accounts and do banking for different companies in the cryptocurrency or blockchain arenas. And and that's helpful. It's it's really frustrating to have a client that wants to pay its people in U.S. dollars and they can't get a bank to help them. Yeah, and we've we've seen you know some banks invest pretty significantly in blockchain. You know, just to call out one, I think J.P. Morgan has, has, has several uh, significant um, patents in that area. As we as we talk about the differences in crypto regulation among countries and how it's starting to evolve and maybe try to try to bring things more in line, uh, you know, from country to country. Are you seeing any countries out there that provide a model for maybe something that we should adopt in the U.S., um, whether it's from you know a customer-centric point of view or whether it's good for business? Is there any country you think really is doing it the right way uh, when it comes to crypto regulation right now? It's interesting you use the words, you know, the scheme that's good for business, because like Courtney said, from one perspective, if you're a large, you know, you've got a large startup that's pretty established and you want to operate out of, you know, Cupertino, I mean, you, you, want, to, you want to work in a, in a jurisdiction like the United States where regulations are getting promulgated. But at the same time, you know, if you've, you've got your smaller startup, you have a, a more out there idea, you want to work in a place where it's easier to raise money. You know, a lot of the ICOs that were being done two years ago, as Courtney mentioned, were raising, you know, enormous amounts of money in, in you know, north of $100 million for ideas that otherwise probably wouldn't have been able to raise that amount of money if the investments had been subject to traditional regulations. So you've got sort of a scale, I guess. And on the one hand, you've got at one extreme, you know, China, which bans um, cryptocurrency and, and blockchain pretty much entirely. And then on the other hand, you've got countries like Singapore, where, you know, the country's central bank is actually specifically helping crypto startups open bank accounts. Um, so I guess the answer to the question is there isn't any one jurisdiction that's necessarily doing it right with a capital R, but there is sort of a, a range of a palette of countries that the U.S. is going to have a choice to choose from as it models its regulations going forward. I, I, yeah, I don't know what right is in this in this case. Uh, one thing that I find really interesting is what Estonia has been doing. They're becoming a smart country. And they've moved voting onto the blockchain, and they're working on doing national registry cards by blockchain. That's much broader than just cryptocurrency, obviously. But I find it really fascinating to watch, and I look forward to seeing how it develops there, because that's something that I would love to be able to avoid DMV lines for the rest of my life. And they've come up with a system that allows you to avoid that. 
And the U.S. is watching, too, the, the pallet that I mentioned earlier. You know, Courtney mentioned the voting. West Virginia did a pilot um, blockchain-based voting app for service members abroad in this past election cycle to see how it worked. And that's something that they had seen work overseas and decided to, to bring stateside. We, we talked about, I talked about, um, you know, Singapore's central bank specifically helping crypto businesses. In Wyoming, uh, the legislature recently just passed a, a bill specifically creating or purporting to specifically create. It's, it's not exactly a bank, but it's a bank-like entity that would allow businesses, like Courtney was talking about, to deposit crypto, withdraw U.S. dollars, you know, keep, keep money in an actual account as opposed to having it in the digital world. So, I mean, people, people at home are watching what's happening overseas. But going back to your original question, I mean, we saw New York State come out with really strong regulations right at the very beginning. And I can only imagine that the regulators were hoping that would spur development within mm. their state, and it, it didn't quite have that effect. Instead, people have looked at the bit license regime and just said, you know what, that's really complicated. How about I not be in New York? And I mean, that's just what we've seen kind of boots on the ground is, is people saying, you know what, I think I'm going to choose New Jersey or any other state in the United States. Um, if I need to be physically near New York City, I'll take New Jersey. But um, that's that's something we've seen people people do is, is to shy away from that. And so now you kind of have a bit of an arms race with, with different states trying to regulate in a way that they think would be most effective and most helpful to generate business within their state. Sure. And to follow up on that, uh, just curious, is there any state that, you know, is really positioning themselves to be to be the crypto hub? You know, Delaware is it where everybody goes to to register their to incorporate their business. Is there going to be a Delaware of crypto in the U.S.? Is I mean, how are things looking at looking like uh, from from states when it comes to racing to make things the most business friendly for, for these ICO and, and crypto businesses. Yeah, that's a, I mean it's it's a Delaware 2.0 arms race. In fact, a lot of a lot of states that have had state legislature initiatives and discussions have specifically said we want to be the Delaware of cryptocurrency because it's a whole new industry with, you know, a market cap of north of 100 billion dollars at times it has just sort of materialized out of thin air. And, you know, those businesses presumably will eventually sort of sift down to to one location. As far as specific states that are in the running, I think New York was in the beginning, just by virtue of being a financial center of the United States, but as Courtney mentioned, the bit license scheme, I mean, there was just a mass exodus of, of businesses from, from New York after the licensing scheme got got passed. I think Chicago is is a, is a leading contender. Illinois has established working groups specifically um, to, to work with blockchain businesses and startups. Uh, Illinois has established some pretty lax laws. Um, Wyoming, I mentioned a second ago, has specifically come out and said um, that it supports blockchain businesses and has done things like relaxing its AML KYC requirements at the state level for blockchain businesses and, again, sort of creating that bank. Um, a lot of it right now is conjecture. You know, how, how much a, a state legislation or a state regulatory scheme really impacts the day-to-day -day business of a blockchain business that's going to be presumably working across the country and also internationally, where things like the BSA and international regulations apply is sort of to be seen. But at the very least, the states are saying right now, I want to be the one to grab the most headlines. And I think that places like Illinois and possibly California or Wyoming are in the front running. You definitely see it coming out from, from all the different states, but you see different states approaching it in different ways. Like in Tennessee, there's been legislation passed that smart contracts are contracts. In Delaware, you see that they've passed legislation saying you can do all of your corporate record keeping on smart contracts. And so you see different states implementing little pieces of the puzzle and it's I think it's yet to be seen which piece is the most attractive and will garner the most um, kind of voting boots with the feet to that state. Sure and 
I want to transition now. You know, we, we've talked a lot about the crypto uh, regulatory environment and where things have progressed, and you know, the question marks that that are present in the industry right now. I want to talk about when you advise your clients, and a client comes to you and says, you know, I want to do an ICO to whether fund my business or, or whatever uh, application they would like to do. What, given the uncertainty in the regulatory environment and just the way things are evolving from a legal point of view, what are the advantages of an ICO that make it attractive, given the question marks from a regulatory perspective? I think a lot of it is from the marketing standpoint. Um, coming out and saying, hey, we've got this ICO, still sounds interesting and attractive. And it's not something, and what you can accomplish with an ICO is something that you can accomplish through a number of other resources from either crowdfunding or seed funding or series A financing. I mean, there are a lot of different ways that you can accomplish the same thing. And like to do an ICO and not be listed as a security, you have to fall into an exemption. And one of those exemptions is selling only to accredited investors. And so from that standpoint, you're acting an awful lot like a normal series A offering. It just really depends on why the client wants to do it. If it's um, more of a marketing ploy or if there's some sort of utility behind it. And if there is actual utility behind it, then you might be looking at more of a utility token. And that's that's different. That actually has, it's think of it as kind of the Chuck E. Cheese token that you put into the, to the, um, to the game at the, what do you call arcade. that place? An arcade. arcade. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, I spent a lot of time in arcades as a child. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say, Courtney, that there are, that it's easier to do an ICO right now than a, than a full IPO or a full securities offering, or that there's any regulatory advantage at all? Um, it's easier from the standpoint of you can go do it right now with an IPO due to the government shutdown. You can't you can't do an IPO right now. Like you're not able to to move forward at the SEC. So you could do an ICO because you don't need the SEC to take actions for that. You still have to follow your paperwork and do all of that. I'm not saying you're exempt at all. Um, I'm just saying that that you're you're not waiting for a stamp of approval to proceed. You file your paperwork and you can go forward. So from that standpoint, it's easier. From the standpoint of who has a clear trajectory, an IPO has a clear and established history, and an ICO doesn't. So your chance of enforcement, I would say, is less of, of the SEC coming back after you and saying, hey, you didn't do that right, or any other regulatory body saying you didn't do that right, is much less with an IPO because you have an established clear-cut path to follow. Yeah, so so you know, for, for our listeners that might, be not, might not be familiar with the accredited investor process, um, what what are the limitations placed by you know only being able to offer your security or, or, or your asset to an accredited investor, and how is that different uh, from the universe of potential investors offered by an IPO? Right. So the requirements for becoming an accredited investor involve things like having two hundred thousand dollars in annual income for the last two years or so um, for a single you know person, or three hundred thousand dollars for um, you know joint income. Um, or if you have your net worth that exceeds you know a million dollars and individually or jointly with your spouse, um, which obviously creates a pretty high bar, especially in an industry like the crypto space where there's not an awful lot of institutional money floating around. There's more now certainly than there used to be as as sort of blockchain is gained publicity and traction. But you know the the average guy you know in the crypto space is is younger and probably doesn't have a net worth of a million dollars and probably isn't turning you know a quarter of a million dollars a year for the last two years. Unless he's been mining Bitcoin for five years. Unless he's been mining Bitcoin for the last five years. And that actually, I think, is another advantage of the ICO 
I think a lot of people sitting on a bunch of crypto are much more willing to invest that crypto in a crypto-based business. Mm -hmm. And so when you run an ICO, people are these you know these people who have mined Bitcoin and have sort of a higher net worth in, in digital assets rather than fiat currency are more willing to invest. And so it's a way to get investors that have liquid crypto sitting around as opposed to liquid U.S. dollars. Right. So so I guess uh, when, when you're doing this ICO and, and you're you're complying. You know, your universe of people that, that you're going to offer to are, are limited by the regulation, as well as, as you mentioned, there's just not, and probably because of all the uncertainty when it comes to regulation, institutions are really trying to stay away at this point in time. So, it is something to think about when we're doing, you know, the future of ICOs and what potential they might have for financing businesses. I wanted to ask you guys. You know, when you look at what y'all have seen in your practice, and you know, the, just the reading and research y'all do as part of practicing in this space, what do you think of as the potential for crypto when you look out five years from now? Five years from now, am I going to walk in to Starbucks and be buying my coffee with a Bitcoin, or or are we going to be seeing uh, you know IPOs being done through the, this crypto coin offering process? What do you think the future is? Of crypto as a part of a broader society that we'll be using on a day-to-day basis. So, Nick, I think adoption for new technology is pretty pretty slow generally. So, when you last went to purchase coffee at Starbucks, how did you pay for it? I use my credit card. That's how I always do it too. I either do that or I pay with cash. Well, almost all of us could pay for it with our iPhone right now, and most of us don't. So, you see pretty slow adoption to new payment mechanisms throughout the United States. So I would say in five years, you're probably not going into to Starbucks to and using your Bitcoin to do it. Now, could you do it by then? Probably. But I don't think you will. I think it's more a matter of, of it, it might be available. I still think cryptocurrency has a lot of utility, particularly in countries like Venezuela, where you have a sovereign getting behind that sp- specific cryptocurrency. And it'll be interesting to see how it develops as like um, an international currency that can be used everywhere. Uh, I do think it'll continue to grow. I don't think cryptocurrency is in any way, shape, form, or fashion dying. I think it'll grow. But I think the real thing that will just skyrocket is blockchain. I agree with Courtney. I I think, um, you know, a lot of people don't understand blockchain. The the, the initial bar to entry is maybe higher than, you know, using you know apple pay on your phone to pay for a coffee um but at the same time i have no idea how to code and you know i've got three computers sitting in front of me in this very room um, i think that over the next five years you know cryptocurrency itself may not be part of our everyday lives but i and, and we may not even really know that blockchain itself has become a part of our lives but i do think that increasingly in, in increasingly insidious and sort of pervasive ways cryptocurrency or rather the blockchains that cryptocurrencies are based on are going to become a part of our daily lives. Even if it's things like, for example, the companies that we buy our coffee from using blockchain to track where their products come from. You know, uh, Walmart just a couple weeks ago came out and asked all of its leafy green lettuce suppliers to uh, track their shipments from farm, you know, to to retail on a blockchain. Um, and that's huge because that's arguably the first major industry use case where a company has said, we think that the cheapest, best way to do this is on a blockchain. Um, and if more businesses keep doing that, then over the next five years, we'll definitely see adoption in ways that touch our lives, even if we're not aware of them. Yeah, Josh, I mean, the, the, the applications in logistics are really remarkable. You know, I, I saw that same Walmart story that you were talking about, and uh, you know, they were able to track uh, their products you know, from the store all the way back to the tree that it came off of, you know, in South America in a matter of minutes versus previously it might have taken a week or more to, to track all your resources. Then when you and when you look at something like you mentioned leafy greens like the romaine 
uh, issue we had in the past year. It, it, it'd be really nice to just punch a couple uh, keys on a keyboard and then pull all the bad stuff off the shelf and leave all the good stuff on uh, so I can keep eating my Caesar salad. But, you know, we can only dream. One other thing I wanted to ask you about before we go away is just as we look out into 2019, what are you going to be paying attention to this year when it comes to the evolving uh, crypto blockchain regulatory space? What do you think are, are the things folks should be really watching over the next year? I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to what the regulators are saying and doing as far as the speeches they're giving, the actual guidance they're issuing, and then enforcement actions they're taking. And I'm going to be paying attention to that so my clients don't have to. They shouldn't be bothered with paying attention to that. There's too much going on in that space. Um, on a regulatory point of view, for anybody to be involved in that besides an attorney, in my opinion. I mean, people can certainly look at it for their own fun, but from a really um, concerted effort, I think it better just to hire somebody with that expertise and then they can focus on the actual technology and, and developing that and moving forward with use cases. I'll leave the regulation to Courtney for now and say that the what I'm most excited about and also most concerned about and simultaneously most interested about is kind of the use cases that I was talking about a second ago, right? There's been enormous you know, investment in R&D and conferences where we've had case studies and hackathons over the last two or three years. But really, for the amount of money that's been invested, there just haven't been a huge number of actual real-world use or test cases that have said blockchain is the best way to do it. Um, and so I think that 2019 and um, 2020 are going to be the years where we sort of see, is this going to always be a pie-in-the-sky idea for um, you know, people who are dreamers about the future? Or is this going to be something that you know your business and my business can use? Is this going to be something that I can take from my crypto client or my blockchain client to um, you know my auto manufacturing client and say, hey, let me hook the two of you up? Um, I think that that my my blockchain client over here has a really great idea that's going to make your auto manufacturing business work a lot better. Um, because when you get to that level of adoption, that's when blockchain is going to actually take off. That's when the cryptocurrencies are going to start really accumulating value. Um, and I think that, that that's when the work for us and also the opportunities for the public sector are going to start to really develop. Yeah, and, and, and all that cash flowing into those those arenas is going to depend on having some predictability when it comes to the regulatory environment. So I think all, all that all that kind of comes together to kind of tell the story what we talked about today. And you know, I want to thank you all for taking time to come on the show. This is an area of the law that's continuing to evolve. And, you know, as we said earlier on the show, we're going to see new guidance come out later this year that maybe will give us a better picture of what's going on. Um, if folks want to stay in touch with you and kind of see what y'all's thoughts are on, on how things are developing, is there anything you want to promote or you want to shout out uh, from the firm? Sure. We have, a, we have a law firm website called blockchainandbanking.com where we post on recent developments in the blockchain and banking regulatory space. And then we both individually have LinkedIn pages. I'm Courtney Rogers Perrin at LinkedIn. And you can search me, Joshua Lewis, um, Frost, Brown, Todd, to pull up my firm bio. Awesome, y'all. Well, well, thanks so much uh, for taking the time to come on the show. And you know, as things develop, maybe we'll have y'all on here in, a, in six months or so to revisit uh, you know, how, how things have played out. The information contained in this podcast is for educational use only and does not constitute legal advice. For legal advice on your personal cryptocurrency and blockchain-related holdings, please contact your attorney. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan and Dan Boyd for their work behind the glass. For Courtney Rogers-Perrin and Joshua Lewis, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!